As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Episode 131 of the Keith Law Show. I will be joined today by my colleague at the moment, over at the New York Times, sports writer Jonathan Abrams, to talk about his book, The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip-hop, which came out last fall in hardcover and will be out on October 3rd in paperback. Uh, For those of you who subscribe to The Athletic, I have actually not had any new baseball content, I think, since the last podcast. However, next week I'll be picking back up. Should have a minor league scouting notebook. We'll see how that goes, whether etc. And also we'll do my annual September content, which is minor league player of the year, players I was wrong about, and my hypothetical postseason awards ballots, which this year I have an actual vote for NL rookie of the year. So I will only cover the other five AL rookie, both Cy Young's, both MVPs. That piece will run the end of September. The other two, the order is not quite set. For those of you who follow me for non-baseball content. I do have another board game review up over at Paste Magazine. That's a midweight game called Bamboo, which has some really lovely art and is a lot of game in kind of a medium-sized box, which is something I'm increasingly conscious of because I own way too many games. They take up too much space, and I really am kind of tired of games that have a huge box and then not a lot of stuff in them because that's just dumb, right? I mean, I know it's air. It's not waste. It's wasting a little bit of cardboard or whatever, but takes up space. And space is not something I have, at least not in infinite supply. And for those of you who are looking for any of my, I guess, cultural commentary, uh, I do have a new music playlist up for the month of August that is over on my blog, meadowparty.com slash blog. And just to throw it out there too, saw Fontaine's DC and the Arctic Monkeys last night at The Man in Philadelphia. What an unbelievable show. That tour has more or less just started. I think they're about the one third point. So if they're coming through and you're a fan of just really good rock music, highly recommend. Fontaine's DC sounded absolutely amazing. They were better live, I would say, than they are on record. And Arctic Monkeys, after a little bit of a slow start where I think they had a problem with the mix, where the guitars especially were not quite loud enough, 
they sort of straightened it out before the midpoint. And then Alex Turner basically acted like a rock star the whole rest of the way. And I thought, yeah, that's what a rock concert is supposed to look like. So highly recommend if they're coming through your town, they put on a hell of a show. Now it's my pleasure to be joined by Jonathan Abrams, author of The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip hop, which came out last year in hardcover. It will be out in paperback in on October 3rd, just in time, more or less, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the of the genre of hip hop. And Jonathan is also a general sports writer for our sister publication over at the New York Times. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. For for a couple more days, Keith. <laughs> I'll be in sports. <laughs> um, so I love the book. And uh, my, some of my listeners know I'm a longtime fan of hip hop, having grown up on Long Island. Um, I am 50 also. Um, and so I grew up on Long Island as that music was kind of making its way out of the city into the admittedly very white suburbs and starting to show up on radio um and also just people exchanging tapes and you know talking about new artists as they were popping up um so i would love to hear a little bit about sort of your origin story too how did you first uh, become a fan and maybe who were some of the some of the artists who were particularly important to you as you first became a fan of rap music as i assume as a kid yeah so i really appreciate the era and the place where i grew up i grew up in southern california in the late 80s, early 90s, where West Coast hip hop was really starting to bubble. And I just missed that whole NWA wave growing up, but I was there for you know Snoop Doggy Dog and him coming up and Dr. Dre and The Chronic getting into Tupac, who for me is my goat uh, Tupac. Back then you have to look at how blacks were being represented and in media and on films and television and things like those matter matters where you had the upstanding uh, rule follower black person or either the the black criminal on television or being represented in. and Tupac was somebody who came at you with all types of mechanisms and sides and different portrayals of what it meant to be black and it wasn't just a monolith he could be vicious and visceral, or he could be sensitive with the song like Dear Mama. So he showed me all aspects of Blackness. And, you know, just to piggyback off that a little bit, one of the common themes that comes up in The Come Up is just how much on the outside this music was when it first, even when folks in the late 70s, I guess mid to late 70s, started trying to move into the recording side, it seems like there was a lot of resistance or maybe just flat out disinterest from the mostly white controlled recording industry, which um, it's probably even worse today in terms of consolidation. But then it was very much like if we couldn't put you into one of just a few buckets, we they weren't interested. And I'm curious how much you heard. You interviewed a, a, an unbelievable number of people, including a lot of people who were around at the genre's birth. How much did you hear about that? And how much did the the folks you interviewed talk about kind of the DIY ethic. They just had to do a lot of this themselves because the music industry was either not interested or, or just not willing to help them make this crossover and become a, a commercially viable music genre. Yeah, I think the whole ethos is DIY for hip hop, right? That's fits into its fabric since the beginning. And it's funny because it's almost, the, the birth is almost an accident, right? Nobody thought that this thing was gonna go far Everybody was told it was a novelty. It was a fad that they weren't making their own music. 
that they were just copying and repurposing other people's music. And so when the opportunity comes for hip hop to go on the radios, the big first flash is Rapper's Delight uh, back in 1979. And back then with Rapper's Delight, all the people who had been practicing, what well, it wasn't even called hip hop at that time, but all the people who had been practicing it, they didn't even want to do it because they didn't see any purpose, see any reason for it to be on radios or on vinyl. So Sylvia Robinson, uh, the creator of Rapper's Delight had to basically get these three teenagers and round them up and just say, here, record this song. And it became this great sensation. But even then for a while, you didn't have really the record industry executives take it seriously until you start to see Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin and what they're doing with Def Jam in the mid eighties. And even then after that, for a while, it's concentrated in the media epicenters in New York and Los Angeles for a while. So, you know, that's up until the, the mid, mid to late nineties before you start to see uh, people start to take the th Southern region seriously. Yeah, you did a lot of that description in the book where you're, the book is, it, there's a chronology to it, but it's also very geographically focused, which made a ton of sense to me just as I was reading it too, because then you do, we do think about different schools of hip hop and as they emerged over time, where the Dirty South genre, you talk about chopped and screwed, um, and even some smaller centers in the South and even in the Midwest that started to produce more talent, but later on. And I was curious how folks described it to you as the genre spread. So obviously the birth is in New York and then the second big wave came out of California. But without a lot of radio support and until MTV started airing it, really not a lot of mainstream support, period. How did that music end up traveling to these different genres where it was where it suddenly became popular enough to give birth to a number of classic artists from from all of these different regions? Yeah, so that's a very good question because it was a nightmare trying to figure out a way to organize this book. <laughs> and the best way the best way that it was explained to me and how I thought about it was thing starts in New York and nobody's really arguing that. So the tree and the seed is planted there and then it starts growing and then it starts spreading and the branches are, are spreading out here in LA or here in Chicago or here in New Orleans. And it's something different, but it's the same and it's in, it's an extension of what comes out of that birthplace in New York. And one thing I love about hip hop is that the different geographic regions interpret it differently. So in Miami, where you're in a club, it's sweaty, you're dancing, bass and booty mu music and what Uncle Luke is doing really starts to spread. If you're in Houston and you're kind of slowed down outside, sitting outside your car, the top and screwed comes through. If you're in LA, you're you know, driving with the windows down on the freeway, the chronic and the G-funk is, is what comes out. So it's really almost unique to every geographic area. Now it's all, you can be anywhere and make any type of music, but back then when it's spreading, it, it's really germane to that area and that, that geographic location. And one of the interesting ways that I don't think people really realize this is how it spread originally before even radio play was that it spread to different army bases where people from different places all across the country would locate at this you know, army base in California or Texas or wherever, and they would come together and it would be this person from New York has this cassette that this person from LA or Alabama or Houston has never heard before. 
And that's how they hear it for the first time. And it spread a lot that way as well. And it seemed like that was a lot of what drove the innovation then was, I mean, I think of this almost from a business perspective, which I, I know sounds a little cold for, a, for an artistic endeavor, but that the, some of the geographic isolation allow, it's almost like um, evolutionary biology, right? You have a little population, the Atlanta group, uh, you know, the original group, the Dungeon family came out of there. You know, they were working in a little bit of musical isolation from New York and from California. And so that allowed them to grow in very different directions. And, you know, I feel as someone who still enjoys the genre, but I'm also an old man now. And so I'm like, back in my day, it wasn't this was real. And look, there's still a lot of good work coming out, but I feel like what you just said, there's a little homogenization now and I'm, I'm worried we're not seeing the same kind of innovation. And I, I'm curious if that came up, if that's your personal feeling, if you agree or disagree, if, or if you heard that, cause you talked to a lot of the leading lights from the seventies and eighties. I mean, God, cool Modi. I would read a whole book of your interviews with that guy. I mean, he's, I always enjoyed his work, but he comes across as one of the sort of the, the, the sages, right? He should be sitting on a mountaintop dispensing wisdom. Um, I'm curious if they feel that way or if they sort of took, I think, a Q-tip on the, the Last Tribe album where he named checks, what is it, Joey Earl, Kendrick, and Cole. That is somebody who's saying, no, they're still, there's great. These are our descendants, our spiritual descendants, and they're still doing great work today, even with all the homogenization. Yeah, just one note on on Kumo D, it's it's funny because it's it's happened a few times in my career where I'm just talking to somebody and you're like, this is a, one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. And if people just listen to this guy, like the world would be such a better place. It, it happened on my previous book when I was working on oral history about The Wire, when I was talking to Ed Burns, one of the co-creators from that show, where he's just like, man, this guy's perspective is unique and smart from Kumo D. And it was funny because I called him and... I don't know if he forgot about the interview because I had scheduled it and and but he answered like real gruff like he had to like hurry up and didn't want to talk but then he ended up talking for for a couple hours and it was just amazing and incredible but back to your question I think it's cyclical everything with with hip-hop is come and goes and something that's not in fashion now will be in fashion in a few days and one of the driving forces of hip-hop is that the youth is always going to be at the forefront of it, changing and adapting and molding it. And right now, attention spans probably aren't what they were when <laughs> uh, you and I and others were growing up. Uh, you can't take two, three years to produce an album. You may take one weekend. And that that careful curation isn't isn't there anymore. Like, you know, when Nas was making his debut album, it was a years and years and years of hard work and a, a whole life story told in that one album where I don't know if that's being done today and I'm right alongside you but I'm not you know consuming you know, too many of these new guys these days I'm glad that Nas is still pumping out CDs every every few months but I can also appreciate that you know 30 years from now my sons are probably going to be like oh this little Yachty or whoever it is that, that's yeah they're classic and you know they're going to be bumping that when they're 40 or, or my age down the road and you know hip-hop is going to be completely different we're celebrating 50 years of hip-hop but that's not a long time if you look at the history of, of stuff it's it's still in its infancy yep. it's half the age of jazz right it is uh, less than half the age of american like the delta blues right even compared to other distinctly american music genres 
it is still very young and um, and still spreading. Like I think it's as you're talking to, I'm thinking, who who do I really like? The no name. She just unretired basically and came back and put out an album. And I understand there's some there's a lot of uh, I think pieces about that. But she's very talented and she's very different. And I think of Little Sims, who's British, and actually I think one of the best, um, both in terms of technical skill and her lyrics, one of the best going now. And they that it, first of all, it's two women, which there's you know you talk about sort of the general misogyny in early rap and how few women there were at the forefront of it, and also that it's now going international, and that is you know if we again for a distinctly American form, I guess that is a positive sign, right? That we are seeing changes. I'm just you're probably viewing it through the lens of my age and thinking nobody sounds like Rakim, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's right. Nobody can touch him. And that's just it. That's just it. He's the best ever. I mean, it's like somebody saying Babe Ruth's the best baseball player of all time. Like, yeah, I, he was the best of his era. He would be not very good if he was playing today. <laughs> yeah. And, and I agree with you. And every time I get, I get upset or just, you know, not with the current age of hip hop. I can go back and listen to my classics. It's okay. My yeah. kids are going to grow up with Tupac. You know who he is. Yeah, it's an important part of parenting, right? You got to teach them the classics. It is. It is. It's it's funny though, like what what seats through to your kids because this this summer I, I have a nine year old and a six year old and I, I dropped them off at at daycare over the summer and I picked them up and they start singing lose yourself out the blue and not even just the, the chorus i mean I'm, I'm talking about like some of the verses and i'm what I, i'm gonna play that for you so it, it is interesting what what still seeps through yeah they hear it i mean i my daughter was in the car at one point she was probably only about i don't know seven or eight years old and i was probably, who knows what i was playing right rosa parks comes on by outcast and that just clicked with her and then I caught her trying to sing it wrong, of course, later. And then she asked to play it. And I had to like play a whole bunch of Outcast for her. And she picked out the ones she wanted. And we made like a little playlist of five or six songs on Spotify that were her Outcast songs. Like they absorb. And that was kind of a big, a little bit of an eye opener for me. It's just like, I'm just playing music for me. She's in the back, but she's totally listening um, for better and sometimes for worse also. It is, it is. So yeah. I'm... Keith, I'm, I'm curious, growing up in, in Long Island, what was it like for you when Public Enemy started to bubble? They were one of the first big bands, big rap acts to kind of cross over and hit us, right? There was the there was the pop stuff, right? We knew Rapper's Delight. Um, but at that point, it's I, I'm just young enough to have kind of missed its heyday. We caught it on the, on the back end, by which point I think people had already said it's not that special. And L Cool J had just started a crossover a little bit. Cool Mo D with Wild Wild West that got a lot of play on MTV. And then when Public Enemy hit, for us, it was the kids who were trying to be kind of counterculture. It was big among the skateboarding crowd where you would think they'd be into a lot of that, you know, hardcore punk. And they sort of were. But here was this album that was like that people knew their parents were going to hate. And that seemed like it was going against something. It's not like any, you know, I lived in a very privileged white suburb right the things they were actually talking about on the record didn't touch us but it was the sense that this is something very different and this is i mean i do compare it to early punk where and which you make some references to in the book as well where it's no this is against it is simply something that is outside of the musical mainstream and voicing themes that are against mainstream culture typical authorities and so when that broke for us it spread very quickly through, I went to a large public school, and I remember being 
kind of surprised at the time how quickly everybody seemed to know about it. And I'm talking about the Nations of Mill Nation of Millions album. That was the one. The previous album didn't register at all. This was the one where you know, people were consuming it. Uh, what was it? High speed dubbing the cassette tapes and swapping them around the school. And that I think was one of the big crossovers. I'm speaking of just one suburb, one school, but that was, oh, wait a minute. This is not, this is a phenomenon now. This is happening very quickly. And once that happens, I mean, I think you trace a lot of this in the, in the book too. One song, one album, one artist crosses over. It just busts open the door. And a bunch of others can follow and people go looking for who else is like them or what other music can I find that's somewhat similar. And then at that point, by this time, it's what, 87, 86, 87? By that point, there was a lot of music that none of us had ever heard before because we were just far enough removed from the city. You know, it's what, 30 miles and, you know, but uh, uh, several light years uh, culturally. And so we had many years of hip hop to go back to, to listen to. And that's when like, LL, Gumbo D, Eric B and Rakim, EPMD, many of whom were local or close to local also, those guys started to, to creep out towards us or, or, you know, maybe it was us just saying, look, we had the, we had the privilege, we had the money to go find that stuff. And so, and then it started to show up in record stores and the, the business cycle was very small. The business cycle really accelerated. Then I go to college in Boston in 1990 and noticed that there's far less interest it just culturally, it hadn't gotten there yet, um, which was my New York bubble speaking, actually. Well, that's that's really when the source is starting to to develop in in Boston in the, the early nineties. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear about that back then? The source? Yes. Yep. Uh, probably not long after it started, right? Because that was a couple of college guys up there. I think at least one of them went to the college that I went to. Actually, he might. I think he was a couple years before me, and so that started to show up. Um, at the Hard Square newsstand. I would see that, which was like, I think it's still there. I hope it's still there. It's like a legendary, very small, but really great old school news magazine stand. And I remember seeing it there and this is different. This is interesting. And you know, I'd see a couple of kids on campus reading it as it was starting to, to gain popularity. And it seemed like they were the, and you described this in the book too. They were like early hit makers, right? If you got a good write up in the source, God, if you got mentioned at all, that can make a huge commercial difference. Oh, without a doubt, it was like hip hop's early viable. Yeah, yeah Strong Island or Strong Island, Long Island has strong a Islands, very yeah. <laughs> has a very strong place in hip hop hierarchy. Where you know, back when hip hop was forming, kids who lived in you know the Bronx in New York City, they didn't really have the assets or the resources to take it as far as kids you know maybe in Long Island. So you have Public Enemy coming out of Long Island or Eric B and Rakim, where they really felt almost an onus to carry this farther because they did have the, the type of almost, you know, space, or they could be able to get a, a turntable, set of turntables that kids in the city couldn't get. So they felt a, a responsibility to take this thing even farther. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yeah, it seems like that, again, it's that sort of, I hate to keep bringing it back to kind of evolutionary biology, but I think of that, right? It grows in one place, it starts in one place, and it grows outwards. And as it moves outwards, too, you have time and you have distance, and you start to hear some of those changes. Like, I going back to some of the early recordings, like I think of the original BDP album, which obviously is incredibly, it's a classic, it's incredibly important, but also sounds like it was recorded in a bathroom. <laughs> And then you get to the even the first EPMD record, the first Eric B. and Rakim records. Oh, we've not only has the sound started to evolve, but there's a level of professionalism there too, which I think comes back to you talk a lot about de- the origins of Def Jam and some of the other. I mean, people were just starting their own labels because they didn't get enough interest from the majors to try to make this happen and, and spread it. And then you start to get that element of professionalism. And it was very interesting to me how many artists you spoke to who would then talk about a producer. Or, or a producer slash or a DJ who would help that who either helped them along, who produced it for them, or who just showed them how stuff worked. Because it seemed yeah. like so much of this was like word of mouth. Like, come in, I'm going to show you how to do this. And that's how the knowledge started to spread and I guess also make its way across the country. Yeah, without a doubt. And I was struggling with coming up with a name for this book. And then the come up just hit me because you, you think about where it started from and where it is now. To me, the story of hip hop is the greatest come up imaginable because it literally came out of nothing in, in the Bronx from this group of neglected kids to globally it's penetrated every strand of culture. Well, I think of it like the blues also where it came from you know, less advantaged people. I mean, blues came out of a lot of deep poverty and people just do, making do with what they have. Like I think of it as, you know, it's a lot of culture traditions, a lot of food traditions. Why are, you know, we talk about peasant food and now it's like, glorified it's like people ate that stuff because it's all they could afford right <laughs> and a lot of the early hip-hop too it's hey this the, if you could afford the equipment so many of your early stories are somebody just getting a hold of turntables getting a hold of an early drum machine and how it changed their lives and now i could practically walk to guitar center and get one for like 50 bucks exactly but at now the time, songs it, are being made on phones and computers <laughs> that i mean Nothing against Lil Nas X, but when that song came out, I'm like, what? How, what? Now I feel really old. Like, a song is not even two minutes long, and it started on what app? And then, yep. Thank God I got kids to explain all this stuff to me and talk to me like I'm an idiot. Well, it, it really helped uh, make everything more of a democracy, but you're right. It's, it's more homogenous now. I feel like a lot of the, you know, the careful curation that was earlier in hip hop, it's not there anymore. Um, were there folks you want? I'm sure you you interviewed what looks like hundreds of people. Any one or two people you really wanted to get just weren't able to? And obviously, a lot of a lot of really important people from the early days are just not with us anymore. I keep thinking, I would have loved to have heard Heavy D, um, who was so influential on kind of both sides of the record and just, right, he's, unfortunately, he died way too young. But I was curious, is there anybody you tried to get where 
they said no, or you just weren't able logistically to work it out. Yeah, I think hip hop <laughs> is this very difficult place to walk into and say, hey, you want to talk to me for a long time for this book that will come out in four years or so? <laughs> you know? <laughs> When typically the first thing people want to know is how much am I going to get paid for my interview, which I can understand because, you know, for a lot of time, these people didn't get to reap the benefits of what they did. At the same time, I could have either had a book or had a house. <laughs> how many interviews I was trying to do for this book. So if there was people on that whole Mount Rushmore of hip hop. I would have loved to have talked to you. Uh, Jay-Z, Nas, Will Smith, people forget how influential he was in, in the mid-80s in hip-hop. And I wasn't able to get to those people, but I was really happy with the type of eclectic mix and firsthand interviews I was able to do for this book, whether it was being able to talk to Duke Booty, who he wrote the message. And that's one of hip-hop's most influential songs in he ended up passing, unfortunately, before the book was published or talking to MC Shaw Rock, one of the pioneering female MCs. So I, I knew that I'd be able to talk to a lot of people and I'd have talking to enough people wasn't a problem. It was kind of filtering out what to put in because the first manuscript I turned in was like three times longer than the book that published. I was going to say, you must have a thousand plus pages. It was about 500 or so. You must have a thousand plus pages of notes. And, um, you know, I'm seeing that you're, you're condensing. I'm like, I know just from doing interviews like this myself, right? You get this much and then you just, you only end up able to use a tiny fraction of it and you have to make it fit. The hardest thing about oral histories, and I've only done this in short form online, but I can't imagine the jigsaw puzzle aspect of trying to make all of these quotes, all of these stories fit together, especially when you might have three people who were in the same studio at the same time and they have different memories of what happened. You do have a couple of those stories too where they just flat out disagree, which I enjoy, but it adds to the challenge, I think, of trying to put together a project like this. Yeah, I almost love those moments though because in my <laughs> head, I want the reader to feel like these people are all at one giant table and talking yeah. and arguing sometimes amongst themselves. And especially at hip hop's beginning, nobody was documenting this. Nobody knew where this was going to go. So there's no one account or one history that's right, in my opinion. It's this collective yeah. kind of sense of, of what happened and memories change, shift and evolve. So I can't sit here and say this person's right. Uh, but, you know, I think it's interesting to hear different perspectives. I was also very pleased to see how many people you got who were on the business side at some point, especially in the early days, because without them, we don't have this. We don't have this rich history. Maybe maybe hip hop finds its way eventually, but it certainly is going to take a lot longer. And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it ends up fizzling out because there isn't enough commercial possibility. But it seemed like you talked to um, quite a few folks who were in or around at the founding of some of these record labels or who were in early, early in the production side, whose names are, are not so well known. Cause obviously if you could say, oh, I talked to Jay-Z, yeah, yeah, right. People would be drawn to that. I know how that works, but you talked to some incredibly important people who, whose names aren't that well known. And it seemed to me like they had a lot of rich stories to tell um, about even just being present at certain events or what they were thinking when they first heard a lot of this music, which to me is some of the most interesting stuff that that hearing, oh, 
somebody said, oh, this is this is different. I need to get a hold of this or I need to sign this particular artist to my label when doing that involved probably entailed a lot of risk on their end, too. Yeah. And I think that was important to provide that whole 360 perspective, because this is the the mid to late 1980s where you have a white executive listening to at the police by this all black group. And if he decides to not go forward, you know, do we have NWA the way that we know the mass now? Probably not. So without adding perspectives like those would enrich and enhance the book. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the mockumentary fear of a black hat, but they, um, they mock that thing where that, that would seen you just described too, where for listeners who haven't seen it, the group NWH in the movie wants to have a cover with a basically a pile of bodies of dead cops and their manager's like how many dead cops do you want and they said 14 go to the white record executive how many do you want none and the the agent just goes split the difference seven (laughs) so oh it's great i mean you will appreciate every single reference in that movie i'm sure there's some that i missed but there are some real it's all with love, mocking a lot of the first, I don't know, 20, 25 years or so of hip hop. Um, so last question I have for you. So when I first texted you, uh, I joked that we were going to spend the whole time talking about how Rakim is the greatest MC of all time. Uh, it sounds like Tupac would be your answer to that question. Is he at the top? And who else is on your Mount Rushmore? Just for just in terms of all time great MCs. All right. I, I think mine isn't too controversial. I think I go with Pac. I go with B.I.G. and Jay-Z and Nas. And then for his impact and influence, and I think it comes across in the book, you don't hear people talking about anybody in this reverence other than Rakim just for how he changed the whole flow of how a lyricist delivers his rhymes. So I'm going to add him as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one. Of, I've seen interviews with him. Um, where he talks about getting influence from like John Coltrane in his delivery. And I mean, he clearly came to the game with a very different idea because just because of his musical roots, which I think is part of what always attracted me to him as somebody who's like, I like music, I play just as a hobbyist. And so hearing him delivering incredible rhymes, but doing it in a very kind of musical fashion um, just clicked very differently with me. The one you didn't mention, who I would probably put on mine, it's just personal preference. I am, I'm a tribe fan. I'm a Q-tip guy since forever. I still have somewhere. It might be downstairs, but I have, um, I left my wallet in El Segundo on a 12 inch green vinyl, which I uncovered like 20 years later. I'm like, this gotta be worth a lot of money. It's not worth anything at all, (laughs) at all. I'm like, fine, I'm keeping it then. I love it. It'll just be my prized possession. You can't go wrong with tribe. Now, and that was an album when it came out. I was in high school. Hip hop had already started to cross over into the suburbs at that point. And they hit. Right? That clicked very quickly outside of the city. It got to us very quickly. And I think they were, it was, I'm, I may be getting the years flipped. I think De La Soul's debut had just come out and they got a ton of airplay. I mean, I remember potholes in my lawn and me, myself, and I being all over MTV. And that's the thing. We, I'm at that age where MTV mattered a ton. If MTV played it, and trust me, MTV Raps was on when we got home from high school. If they played something, we knew about it immediately. And you could see it spread within days around the school, regardless of genre. 
they had just such an outsized influence. And I'm, you know, right age, right time. Tribe got a lot of airplay. And I was like, I like this. I don't even know why it's so different, but it's different. And I really like it. And right up to the last album, actually, the, the what turned out to be the Farewell album was still among my all-time favorites and probably maybe my favorite rap album in the last 10 years. Yeah. My guess... So, oh, go ahead. So real, go ahead. real quick, just to provide a coda. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop was so dynamic back then because back in the late 80s, you get... Mid to late 80s, you get KRS-One, Public Enemy, Rakim, all coming out and all changing the game. And then you get all these different branches of still New York-centric hip-hop, but it's spreading outside. So you get the start of the Native Tongue movements, and you get De La Soul, and Tribe Called Quest, and Jungle Brothers, and Queen Latifah. And it's all dynamic and eclectic and new and diversifying back then. It's just great hip-hop was pouring out. Yeah, it was an incredible period for... um, it just how prolific it seemed to become, you know, especially for us, right? Five years pre- previously, we didn't know what it was. And now it's everywhere. And culturally, it was everywhere. And I didn't even know the half of it. Look, now we're, what, 30 years on? 35 years on? I hate doing the math on how old I am. But right now it is, I think you said, it's the biggest selling music genre in the country at this point and, um, and shows no signs of letting up. So I think your book was, it's incredibly well-researched. It's a blast to read and incredibly timely too with all the, you know, the conversation. But and I think more mainstream recognition of, everyone knows these records sell. What I have enjoyed about some of the coverage the last two months around the 50th anniversary of hip hop is acknowledging it as an art form and it's tremendous cultural influence. And I think the come up is a great contribution to that. I appreciate that, Keith. Next time we'll talk about why the Dodgers should fire Dave Roberts. (laughs) Perfect. That'll be the sequel podcast. My guest today has been Jonathan Abrams. He is the author of The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip hop, which, as I mentioned earlier, comes out in paperback on October 3rd. If you are a fan of the genre, as I am, or just enjoy a great oral history, especially of an entire art form, I strongly recommend the book. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Keith. I really appreciate it. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.